it became clear that it's really exciting to be able to translate discoveries, you know, translate the work you do in the lab to potentially have an impact beyond just the scientific community. Having that kind of impact is exciting and important and something I think many people would aspire to is to translate their discoveries into a benefit to whatever area they're working on, right? So in this case, it would be human health. So I think it was always of interest, but I don't think I ever particularly focused on the entrepreneurial side. And I think it was this wonderful, you know, taking advantage of opportunities when they arise. Hello and welcome. I'm Bruce Seat and you're listening to the Science to Business Network podcast, a show dedicated to showcasing the stories, advice, and insights of individuals who are working at the interface of science, innovation, and business. We'll hear their journeys and how they're using science to change the world. We hope these stories will inspire you and provide you a sense of the wonder and possibilities of science and the diversity of opportunities and careers to make a meaningful impact. We've invited Dr. Leah Cowan to join us through Zoom from her home in Toronto. Dr. Cowan is a professor as well as the chair of the Department of Molecular Genetics at the University of Toronto. Dr. Cowan completed her PhD at the University of British Columbia and a postdoctoral fellowship in the laboratory of a renowned scientist, Dr. Susan Linquist at MIT. Dr. Cowan herself is a renowned expert on infectious fungal diseases and, based on her research and discoveries, has co-founded Bright Angel Therapeutics, a preclinical stage biotechnology company focused on the development of novel therapeutics for the treatment of drug-resistant and life-threatening fungal infections. In this conversation, recorded in May of 2020, we discussed Dr. Cowan's career path as a scientist, department chair, and her experiences as an entrepreneur and some of the many lessons and insights she's gained while navigating her journey. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Leah Cowan. Hi, Leah. Welcome to the Science to Business Network podcast. It's really great to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Bruce. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. So I'd like to start by asking you about where you grew up and were you always interested in science as a kid? Yeah, so I grew up in Toronto. My parents were both American and they came up to Canada shortly before I was born. They moved to Toronto and so grew up in this city and I was always interested in science. I mean, I love to play outside and explore the dirt and the organisms that you'd find, the bugs, all kinds of animals and creatures and love to understand and imagine how things might work and how how you could explore that. Loved watching nature shows, loved reading books about scientists and was totally fascinated with the idea of discovering new ideas and new mechanisms of how things really worked in, in terms of biology. When you decided then to go to do your degree at the UBC in microbiology and immunology, what was your attraction to UBC and in particular microbiology and immunology? So I really loved biology. It was pretty clear about that. I loved all kinds of biology. I loved thinking about plants and ecosystems. I loved thinking about animals and I loved thinking about microbes. But it became pretty clear that I loved the speed with which you could ask questions and get answers in working with microorganisms. And I was also really fascinated with the diversity of organisms and the profound impact they really have on every aspect of life on the planet. Uh, I also loved that you didn't have to do dissections when thinking about <laughs> microorganisms. So that was a real plus. Uh, so I became very interested in microbiology, thought these were great systems to study evolution. You could do really neat kinds of experiments to study uh, evolution in action and then generate, you know, a freeze down fossil records that you could revive at any point to ask cool questions about the sort of genetic basis of adaptation. So that kind of science got me really excited. Uh, that's why I headed into the microbiology realm. And in terms of why UBC, basically I had grown up and lived in Toronto all my life and really thought it would be fun to use the undergrad experience to go somewhere new. And Vancouver seemed like a beautiful destination uh, that was also coupled with a, a fantastic university, great science. And some friends were also going to Vancouver for education at UBC. And so it really all kind of came together that it would be a great place to go to learn science and have a good kind of community to do so. 
You came back to Toronto in 1997 to start your PhD in the Department of Botany under two supervisors, James Anderson and Linda Cohn, and your thesis was looking at drug resistance in disease-causing yeast Candida albicans, which really set the stage for your subsequent research. What was the process for selecting that lab and this area of research in particular? So that's a good question. This was before the internet. <laughs> you got to think back uh, quite a ways. But I had been coming back to Toronto in the summers because that's where my family was. So I was out at UBC doing really fantastic work in the microbiology space, loving it. Coming back to Toronto and it became clear I wanted to have uh, summer research experiences to explore whether research was a, an area that I'd like to pursue for a potential career. So I remember trying to think about how on earth I would find uh, potential labs to explore for summer projects. And I remember distinctly, you know, printing off my CV, putting it in an envelope and mailing it to these various departments at the University of Toronto and just hoping for the best. And to think now how crazy that is really is, is uh, quite amazing in terms of the capacity to do research and figure out where you might want to go. But at that point, that's what I did. And I got contacted by quite a few labs who were interested in my CV and were interested in talking to me about summer projects. So I met with a variety of different faculty members when I came back to Toronto and then really hit it off when I interacted with uh, Jim Anderson and Linda Cohn. So they were they were fantastic and could really see the potential of starting up some new and exciting work. And it was just, you know, you can tell when there's both an excitement about the science the topic, the approach, the lab environment, and then also the people, people that you can really connect with and would be excited to work with. So I came back to Toronto to work with Jim and Linda for a summer project and really loved it. And this, at this point, they worked exclusively on pathogenic fungi of plants and sort of fungal model organisms, so model genetic systems. And I was helping a PhD student doing some sort of population genomic studies to be able to explore what were the determinants of host specificity. So what allows a fungus to infect, you know, one type of plant uh, and restrict its range or potentially jump to new hosts. So we were asking these questions in the context of plant pathogenic fungi and loved the, loved the experience. So it was a great, great place to learn how to, to do science. And then when I was coming back to UBC and sort of finishing up my undergrad, I had such a positive experience with my summer research that it was clear to me that I, I really wanted to pursue that for my graduate work in terms of sticking with fungi. So fungi were just such cool organisms, tremendously understudied if you look at uh, compared to other uh, microorganisms like bacteria and viruses. So tons and tons of work to be done, huge kingdom, fascinating organisms. But my bent was focused a little bit more towards the human health kind of area. I thought this would be really exciting to take what I had learned from working with agricultural pathogens and see what we could understand in terms of fungal pathogens of humans. And I know that this lab that I was working in had never worked on fungal pathogens of humans. So this was totally new, which kind of excited me too, to build an entirely new program in a lab. And so we worked together and put in a little grant and aid to Pfizer in terms of thinking about the evolution of antifungal drug resistance. So I thought this was super cool to set up a brand new project uh, in a new area working on human fungal pathogens. This was Candida albicans was our model system. And we were able to take you know, a clinically used antifungal drug and study how resistance could evolve in laboratory test tubes and ask just the most fascinating questions, you know, how many different possible evolutionary trajectories were there? How many different ways could the organism evolve drug resistance? Was evolution repeatable? Uh, what were the fitness consequences of resistance? And what were the genomic changes that kind of enabled the evolutionary trajectories? So it was just a, a fantastic to be part of the origin and, and genesis of a new project. And that's, that's what brought me to my uh, PhD lab. And I think I was the first student that they had ever co-supervised. Jim Anderson and Linda Cohn were married. So this was a, a, an exciting journey for them on multiple levels as well. It's sort of a new science and a new mission of co-supervising a graduate student. You had a very productive PhD, publishing at least six first author papers, not to mention multiple other publications you contributed to. Looking back on that time, what were the factors do you think contributed to this productivity? Are there any lessons that you learned that you tell your students? And do you think, based on what you just said, do you think part of the reason you were so productive was that green space uh, side of things, that this was a, a pretty wide open field for, for exploration? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's probably multiple things that contributed to the productivity. So yes, there was lots of questions to ask, but it takes more than questions to sort of drive productivity, I think. So we were really excited and I had great mentorship. So really focused strategies, very regular communication, thinking about sort of what are the big picture goals and having good strategy sessions to make sure we we're all on board. Coming at it from a very fresh perspective, I think is always invigorating. So we're all sort of outside the field and coming into a new area. So I think number one was sort of really strategizing questions that we could answer, right? <laughs> so we we did this in sort of modules, right? We'd, we'd ask uh, one question about how can resistance evolve and then set up the experiments and move it forward. And another key piece then was uh, having a tractable system is fantastic. So I mentioned that fungi are, as with many microorganisms, they have a rapid reproduction time. So we could do these experiments relatively efficiently and get answers. And then I think another piece was we really engaged expertise from other partners where relevant. So we we didn't have to reinvent the wheel. So I remember distinctly when I was learning how to do northern blots, which is a slightly dated technique at this point to look at levels of mRNA in order to understand sort of changes in gene expression that accompany the evolution of drug resistance. Since we hadn't done these techniques in the lab, my supervisors were, were very supportive of sending me to the lab of an expert to learn the techniques directly and also benefit from engagement of being in a scientific environment with experts really in the, the Canada field. So the actual field where I was working, which was, again, not their core expertise. So they packed me off uh, to Switzerland, which was not a bad place to go. So I went and spent a month in Lausanne, Switzerland where I learned to do northern blots and uh, was able to take all these sort of experimental populations that I evolved in the lab where I evolved uh, drug resistance and was able to you know, ship them in advance, go there and then study them to understand uh, the changes in gene expression that were accompanying the emergence of drug resistance. So being able to go there was tremendously enabling. I didn't waste time sort of figuring out how to you know, isolate RNA and do these kinds of experiments, but was able to go and, and be incredibly productive. And in one month got you know, phenomenal data set that largely led to a publication. And then there was another moment where we wanted to take that sort of genome scale uh, and microarrays were really hot uh, technology at that point in time. And there was just this group in uh, Montreal at the National Research Council that had built out uh, a platform for microarrays for Candida albicans, so this, this pathogen. So it was a really exciting opportunity. And again, they shipped me off to Montreal and I was able to work with this group at the National Research Council and sort of optimize the protocols directly working with them for the microarray hybridization and the data analysis. And that was actually the first paper to come out uh, of their microarray platform, their their facility uh, was our, our paper. So it sort of spoke to the efficiency of the collaboration. So I think great partnerships, great mentorship, tremendous focus, and really being goal-oriented with asking defined questions and thinking through how best to answer them. And we had great, you know, really wonderful mentorship with writing papers. I remember uh, distinctly um, the process, you know, you'd write a draft and then send it, and then we'd spend the whole afternoon together huddled around the computer working on revising the manuscript. And it was such a wonderful and focused project where it was clear that this was a real priority to mentor, you know, a student in good writing and the importance of scientific communication. So I think it sort of all comes together with the question, the tractability of the system, good partnerships, and really importantly is good mentorship. What were some of the key findings during your PhD and how did it lay the foundation for your lab's research today then? From my PhD, I mean, we all knew that evolution happens and that evolution of drug resistance was a, a big issue. Uh, and for antifungals, it's a really big issue because we have only three distinct classes of, of antifungals to treat you know, invasive fungal infections. So it's a real a uh, real clinical problem. But the kinds of things we learned were uh, manifold. We learned that there was different adaptive paths that the organism could follow to uh, evolve drug resistance. Um, we learned the role of, of uh, drug efflux. Uh, we learned the role of transcriptional regulation of these efflux genes, as well as other genes, including the target of many of the antifungals. So we were doing some pretty important work at the at the ground level for understanding what's going on in fungi, which is different from bacteria. There's some conserved principles, but also some substantial differences in terms of how DNA is exchanged, for example, and otherwise. And really importantly, we were kind of coming at this from the perspective of evolutionary biology and thinking about when resistance evolves, 
Does it mean that the organism has a fitness consequence, which has really important implications for thinking about if resistance would spread and if it would sort of be maintained in a population if you stop using the drug. So they're really important questions and principles that you could actually generate data that provides important foundation for modeling efforts, for example. And there was not a lot of people working on the antifungal space. So I think uh, many of the contributions were, were really important and seminal in that respect. And in terms of how it led me on my path, it was all about genomics, right? So it was genomics and fitness and the organism, but I hadn't had any exposure to thinking about how certain kinds of regulators might alter adaptive trajectories or how changing a protein might influence the evolutionary potential of an organism. And that's really what led me to, to strategize the particular postdoctoral work that I did with Susan Lindquist. Could you just give a brief overview of what's the larger context of drug resistance in fungi? How big a deal is it? So it's become a pretty big deal. Fungal pathogens mostly infect people who have compromised immune systems. So they're they're uh, been growing actually as agents of uh, concern in recent years as we've had many advances in medical treatments that help people stay alive much longer, even with underlying immunodeficiencies. So there's a, a large population that's very vulnerable uh, to fungal infections, and notably fungi are eukaryotes, so they're reasonably closely related to their human hosts. And this poses a real challenge for drug development because it means that many of the key cellular processes are conserved and many sort of potential targets for drug development are also conserved with counterparts in both the pathogen and the host, which means it can be quite difficult to develop drugs that can effectively kill the pathogen uh, without causing sort of undue side effects in the host. So we have only three of these classes of antifungals to treat invasive fungal infections, which is not a lot. It's a very limited arsenal. One of the classes has been around since the 1950s, and this is the, the polyenes. So they're good at killing the fungus, and there's not a huge amount of drug resistance, although there is some uh, in the fungal pathogens. But the real issue is those agents are incredibly toxic, so they have all kinds of damage to, to host cells. So then the next major class are the azoles, which have been one of the most widely used class of antifungals for decades. And they work by inhibiting the biosynthesis of that same sterol. So many of these drugs are quite safe. So that's that's a plus. It's a good thing. But a major challenge is most of them are sort of static agents. So they cause growth arrest rather than directly killing the fungal cell. And this really creates sort of an ideal condition for the evolution of drug resistance because you repress growth exerting selective pressure, but don't kill the fungus, sort of paving the way for the evolution of resistance. Another big challenge is that azoles are widely used in agriculture. So you have thousands of tons of azoles being used in the field, and it's been shown that this can select for the emergence of azole resistance in agricultural pathogens. This includes organisms that are out in the fields, uh, like aspergillus, for example. And aspergillus can evolve resistance to the azoles in the field, and it's becoming clear that the evolution of resistance in the field is leading to the spread of these resistant pathogens into the hospital environment. So it's sort of really a, a dangerous combination of using a, a life-saving uh, medicine in an agricultural context in terms of antimicrobial stewardship. And then the newest class to really enter the clinic was in the 90s. So that's where we are at the moment. And that was the cell wall targeting kind of candens that block the biosynthesis of a key cell wall uh, linker molecule. And those have been very important in antifungal treatment, but resistance can arise by single point mutation in the drug target. And there's some fungal species that show no, um, they're not sensitive to the echinocandin. So clinically, they're not useful against fungi such as cryptococcus species. So resistance is quite a big problem. And perhaps the example that's most clear in the media these days is with Candida auris. So Candida auris is a fascinating fungus that emerged in 2009 in patients in Japan with ear infections. And if they look back through the clinical repositories, this organism was not in clinical repositories. So they really don't know where it came from. It must have had some other niche because now we see at least four different lineages of Candida auris that are spreading globally around the world. Uh, and these lineages are quite divergent. So they estimate, you know, thousands of years of divergence. And the big concern with Candida auris is twofold. One is that it is highly multi-drug resistant with many of the isolates resistant to all three of our classes of antifungals. So this is a big problem where we have no treatment options. And the other is that this organism survives incredibly well on surfaces. 
and they've had a very difficult time sort of disinfecting hospital environments from this particular fungus. So it's been causing outbreaks in uh, healthcare settings. And again, the limited treatment options raises grave concern. So I think resistance is a big problem and it's growing as we see sort of the spread of these multi-drug resistant pathogens and the emergence of resistance in the field that can be transmitted to hospital environments. That's excellent. Thank you for the overview. And it sets the stage nicely for the rest of the discussion. So following your PhD, you went to the Whitehead Institute in Cambridge, as you mentioned, for a postdoc fellowship with Dr. Susan Lindquist. How did you go about selecting your postdoc? And I think you alluded to it as well already to some extent. Um, But what was it about Dr. Lindquist's lab that attracted you there? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think uh, near the end of my PhD, I actually wasn't totally sure uh, what I wanted to do. I knew I had loved my PhD research and I loved the lab I was in, but I'd really only been in one lab because that was my undergrad summer experience and uh, and my PhD. So wasn't totally sure uh, exactly where I wanted to head. And you know, my mentors encouraged me to just get out there and interview and that I would figure things out as I went. And that's a great way to explore and and talk about my science and network. And so I did that. And there was lots of people that uh, were very interested in trying to recruit me. So I went on quite a number of, of interviews all over the place for labs that had invited me to come out and interview. And so I saw all kinds of different science and gave lots of talks, right, which is always great for building out your your communication skills uh, and building out your network uh, and thinking about different possibilities. And in the end, I wasn't sold on any of them. So they were all wonderful labs, but there was always something that wasn't quite uh, aligning. And at some point, I then realized knowing you're learning what I had, had learned through that process, I was in a much better position to figure out what it was that I really wanted to focus on. And so that's when it became clear to me that I wanted to go to a lab that was in a real hub, a big hub for science. So I guess that's one other point. Having done my my PhD out at the Mississauga campus, it was a really small node. So to go to a seminars, you really had to come downtown. And, and so I wanted to be in the center of a really vibrant and dynamic scientific community. So Boston became a pretty attractive option. Then it had a good city with features that I would uh, value in terms of living in a city. And so there was a few places I was looking at. And when I read about Susan Linquist's work, uh, it just it immediately clicked that this was so cool. And this was exactly what I wanted to do. And part of it was the amazing diversity of science that she had uh, ongoing in her lab. So certainly, the area that I wound up focusing on had to do with this heat shock protein that could influence the expression of genetic variation or the translation of genotype to phenotype. And this was really seminal work that she had done in fruit flies. And then they had found sort of some similar principles in plants uh, and then done some beautiful work in uh, fungal systems, all in the model yeast service DI, but never working with fungal pathogens. But her lab also worked on prions, which are really, really cool uh, in their own right, um, and worked on neurodegenerative diseases and worked on, you know, amyloids and, and all kinds of really diverse biology. Being in a big lab like that with that tremendous scientific uh, expertise would provide a really a different layer of scientific training. And when I went there to interview, uh, it clicked right away. She was an amazing uh, scientist, uh, really visionary, uh, very creative, incredibly good at asking like the big questions and writing uh, really compelling and, and engaging papers. Uh, and she was also an amazing leader. And that really attracted me as well, because she was director of the Whitehead Institute at that point. And that leadership quality was really intriguing to me. And I thought it was just the the best place to be exposed to the amazing science in the Boston community and learn really new stuff. And my project then focused on this chaperone protein, and I had never worked on proteins uh, in my graduate work. So I figured that that would lend a whole new perspective on understanding how this key protein that regulates the translation of genotype to phenotype would really provide the next layer of building on my scientific foundation. In 2015, you published your first paper from the Linquist Lab, and it was in Science. It showed the development of antifungal drug resistance dependent on high levels of uh, heat shock 1390. Uh, could you provide a brief overview of the implications of your findings there, and in particular on the potential to develop therapies against fungal infections? 
Absolutely. So that was a, a great paper. I mean, that's one of those rare two author papers where one person does all the work, right? So, and then the other person's involved in writing and funding the, the project. So it was an incredible collaboration. And that basically built on that work that I referred to earlier, where work in flies and plants suggested that HSP90 had a really profound impact on, on evolution. And so I brought the fungal pathogens with me to Susan's group in, uh, in Boston and thought that this would be just such a great system to test uh, HSP90's role in evolution, given that fungi evolve rapidly. The evolution of drug resistance is a fantastic trait to study because you can uh, control the selective pressure very precisely. And it's a really profoundly important issue. <laughs> so we could study how evolution works using this really important sort of system. And so fundamentally what we found was that if you genetically reduced HSP90 levels or used one of the small molecules that is made in nature, natural products, or small molecules that had been uh, in development for cancer treatments, we could impair the evolution of drug resistance. So we could block it. So we basically disabled the fungus and the fundamental principle was that these antifungal drugs are often not very effective at killing the fungal cell, but they sort of destabilize the cell wall or the cell membrane and induce this profound stress response by damaging the cell. The fungus sort of uses HSP90 to coordinate this massive stress response, and that allows these fungi to be very tolerant of the drugs and evolve resistance. And so if you cripple the resistance network, right, by targeting this hub, HSP90, you would actually make these antifungal drugs very potently able to kill the fungus. So there'd be this amazing synergy between uh, the HSP90 inhibitor and the antifungal that would all of a sudden become very effective at killing the fungus, even fungi that had already evolved drug resistance. So this seemed like a super cool strategy and the science paper really focuses on the mechanism and how, how that works. And then it led the way to further explorations of the therapeutic potential. But there were some obvious, very big challenges in that HSP90 is also present in human cells uh, and HSP90 is also essential in all eukaryotes in which that's been explored. So that means we had to develop molecules that were very fungal selective so that they would engage and inhibit only the fungal protein and not the human counterpart to avoid the kinds of toxicity uh, that would be very problematic for an antifungal treatment. Susan started two companies, so FoldRx and Humanity Therapeutics. Is your interest down the commercialization path at all influenced by the fact that she had also some touch points in industry as well? Yeah, I think she was involved on multiple levels. So one would certainly be conceptual that uh, I think models influence us, you know, in many ways. And so she was certainly a fantastic role model as a scientific leader uh, and in terms of her ability to have a real eye to not only making discoveries, but to see how you could translate those discoveries and have an impact. So she was dedicated to having an impact, absolutely. Uh, and so certainly I think that mindset was relevant. And then there was much more, I think, than even just that, uh, in that we continued to collaborate. The HSP90 piece was clearly close to her home as well in terms of her interests. And we collaborated on our HSP90 programs. After the science paper, we published a PNAS paper together where we focused more on the therapeutic potential of HSP90 inhibitors. Uh, and then that really further progressed the program towards thinking about what we would really need to do to develop a, a agent with sufficient fungal selectivity. So we continued working on these ideas uh, together. And at some point, she was actually interacting with leadership at Schrodinger, which is a large computational chemistry company. They were very interested in thinking about ways in which their sort of structure-enabled drug design programs could address important unmet medical needs. So it was actually an interaction between Susan and the Schrodinger leadership that got them interested in targeting HSP90 with fungal selective inhibitors. And she really made the connection and said, you've got to go talk to Leah. And so that was the bridge that then brought Schrodinger to our conversation. And we got very excited about working together in partnership because we realized it was going to be a phenomenal challenge to develop molecules with sufficient selectivity, given how conserved the protein was. So we would need some very serious expertise on the, at the table to develop these kinds of molecules. And Schrodinger had that exact type of expertise. So Schrodinger became a co-founder of our company. Had Susan, you know, not passed away, she would likely be very much involved in this initiative. We were sad that she was not with us, 
but of course we're completely committed to pursuing this and translating it into the kind of impact that she would have loved to see. She really did have an amazing career. What are your memories of her as a person, as an advisor, and as a scientist? Yeah, so Susan was phenomenal on every level. Uh, she was a totally fearless scientist, uh, and there's been you know beautiful pieces written about her uh, on from many perspectives. But she was just simply not afraid to ask the biggest questions. And even if an idea was outrageous, you know, she she would go there. You know, she would explore explore these ideas, think way outside the box. She was at the forefront of you know all kinds of new paradigms. She would challenge expectations and assumptions that were in the field. And she was incredibly rigorous, incredibly creative. Uh, and a wonderful mentor. And she was really dedicated to women in science as well. I mean, she was a great mentor for all of her trainees and she had a huge lab and left a huge legacy of of amazing people who really came together as a community throughout. I think that's a really key key feature. But she, you know, was a scientist in an era where women uh, were less well represented. And as such, she really made a, a dedicated effort to ensure that she would be incredibly supportive of all of her trainees, but to encourage women as well to pursue their dreams and have the confidence to tackle the big questions and really advance their careers in science, that it was all very, very much a path that could be pursued. So she was, she was amazing. And we stayed in very close contact. I loved working with her. She was great. She was incredibly efficient and organized and had so much happening in the lab. And she was great at engaging all of her people with different kinds of opportunities and always amazed by her level of of insight and passion and dedication to her science and to her lab members and her community. And it was devastating when uh, she became very ill and just the whole community rallied around to try everything that they could to, to kind of help uh, resolve the situation. And the community came together again, you know, with sadness, but to, to celebrate her legacy when she did pass. She left such an amazing legacy of science, and it sounds like you had a great mentor and inspiration, both during and after your postdoc. Maybe let's move back to 2006 now and You came back to the University of Toronto to become an assistant professor in the Department of Molecular Genetics. What attracted you back to Canada and to the University of Toronto? Yeah, so I think I had always wanted to come back to Canada. Uh, I think, you know, politically, uh, there's some a number of advantages uh, to being in Canada. And I think culturally as well, my family was all in Toronto. So there was many, many draws back to Canada and back to Toronto in particular. And then the science in Toronto is really fantastic. The science in Canada is there's great science in many places, but Toronto had this this fantastic community. And I was pretty excited by that potential. And so it just sort of came together. <laughs> I would say I wasn't even necessarily planning to be on the job market quite when I when I was, but things just sometimes happen and you follow uh, the opportunity. And so it became clear that there was this opportunity in molecular genetics. And that very clearly was the exact perfect home where I would want to launch my career based on the diversity of science, the phenomenal caliber of investigators, and the amazing collaborative community. So when I saw that position, it just it was something that I definitely went for very quickly because I was actually past the the deadline, the application deadline when I saw it. And so made it happen. And there's a, some funny moments there, but it happened. I <laughs> got the position and was thrilled to join the molecular genetics community in Toronto. I noticed you received several early research awards and infrastructure grants. How important were these early career awards been in terms of fostering your productivity and setting the stage for the last 13 years? Oh, the early career awards are absolutely crucial, right? Because it's all about building momentum. And I think that that you need some resources to build. So the infrastructure awards are are crucial to be able to set up a state-of-the-art lab, right? We They're core for being able to recruit talented faculty members and to enable them to really set up uh, labs that can do the kind of critical work that's going to put them at the forefront of their field. So the infrastructure awards are absolutely crucial. That kind of funding is crucial for science in Canada in general. But then also the early career awards. I also had a Burroughs Welcome Career Award in the Biomedical Sciences. That one was fantastic because the funding was very flexible and it really sort of 
meant I could do more than if you were on the sort of restricted kind of startup funds to get going, right? Then it gives you this amazing opportunity to be far more productive than if you had to ramp really, really slowly. And if you can start multiple programs and get traction with multiple programs, you build expertise, you start publishing quicker. And so then you have a much sort of richer and larger kind of research program that can accomplish more and, and sort of puts you on that trajectory for getting more awards, doing more science, publishing more, and, and having a sort of larger team. So I think the early career awards are really, really crucial, and it can be difficult to get, you know, multiple CIHR grants right off the bat. So you really need the kind of diverse funding portfolio to be able to set the stage for a, a large program to address lots of different questions in different ways. Your lab now has a web page that outlines several interrelated streams of research, including fundamental genomics, chemical genomics, mechanisms of drug resistance and disease, microbiome in health and disease, structure-guided drug design, and experimental evolution. Not all labs would be so ambitious to tackle all of these, but because I think you're looking both at discovery and applied uh, sciences under the same roof, it seems like you've got a good recipe for actually fostering innovation to turn discoveries into potential therapeutic products. How deliberate was your structure in terms of looking at both basic and applied approaches in your research? I think that the structure was fairly deliberate in addressing important questions. And these can be fundamental questions, absolutely, but they had to have some relevance on, you know, someone somewhere. <laughs> so, you know, I think our whole focus on fungal pathogens and antifungal drug resistance, immediately everything that we're working on in terms of these fundamental mechanisms has a potential translation, right? Everything we do to understand, you know, what are required processes for the fungus to, to proliferate, to just be alive, right? All of those are potential targets because if we can kill the fungus, that, that provides a new potential strategy to develop, you know, an antifungal. If we understand how the fungus infects host cells and causes disease, again, those are those are potential strategies for intervention. So I think simply the the framework in terms of the experimental system and the types of organisms we're working on means all of the, the kind of fundamental discovery we do has translational potential. So I think that that is what we do. We want to do, you know, ask important biological questions and publish scientific papers. And then the idea of being able to translate those discoveries, I think, came a little bit later. So we didn't set up the company until, you know, almost a decade in to after I had my lab really uh, solid on a great trajectory for uh, publishing great papers and doing great science. And then in terms of the diversity, it's been key to make sure we have great sort of hierarchy of mentorship. So I've got fantastic senior people that are on my team that really help us manage the really amazing diversity of science that we're doing and provide a really rigorous training program so that each and every student gets exceptional mentorship. We're really focused on mentorship so that all their students contribute to the research mission. So I think that our very structured mentoring plan for our students uh, and trainees is one way that we can balance the really diverse research portfolio to address these different areas of science, these important questions. All of them have had translational potential. And I think that now we've really been in a position to explore that translational potential more fully as we have built this new antifungal drug development company with Bright Angel Therapeutics. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Bright Angel. So in 2017, you co-founded and now serve as the chief scientific officer for Bright Angel Therapeutics uh, to develop antifungal drugs. How did the company come to be? And you mentioned Susan put you in touch with Schrodinger and then who said, let's do this? So it evolved over quite some time. So we had this initial concept and I think there was tremendous enthusiasm on both sides and there was a great, great interaction. You know, it just jived in terms of the, the team. So we were committed to this idea that we were going to do it, but we had to bring in some resources. So Schrodinger wouldn't, was not going to be the one to fund it. They were partners in co-founding. So our mission then was that we required a way in which to build the company, to set up the startup. And so it took took lots of work to try to find, you know, potential investors or figure out the strategy. This was certainly new to me, having not been directly engaged in, in that kind of space before. Um, although Schrodinger had obviously a strong business development expertise and had lots of track record with starting new companies. So they brought that expertise to the table. But it took a little while to get interest from any partners in the antifungal space. 
so there's a, a some lens that fungi are sort of on the fringe and that this was not really a, a big market opportunity, although I think that that's clearly not the case. Uh, but it took a little while. And I think um, one of the things that shifted things, I took a U-Test program, which is sort of an entrepreneurial training program at U of T and was able to get in contact with lots of other individuals in the context of these sort of pitches. And they gave all kinds of good uh, advice on how to approach a startup endeavor. And then that's how we got to our initial connection with what was at the time known as Mars Innovation, now known as TIAP. And so they they were sort of key uh, in identifying the great potential, I think, of, of the opportunity and sort of backing us. And so we were then onboarded with Mars Innovation as one of their kind of startup companies, which was fantastic because they provided a CEO to help manage our, our company and to help in license all of the the relevant uh, intellectual property for which uh, we had to work with the Whitehead Institute, which is where I did, again, my postdoc and where we had the original patent protection regarding targeting HSP90 for fungal infections and working again with U of T. So Luke Whitesell and myself and Schrodinger were the three co-founders of the company. And then Mars Innovation support early on was absolutely crucial for us moving forward. And then we've benefited from funding from Ontario Genomics in terms of non-dilutive funding. And we're recently tremendously uh, grateful for support from Lumira Ventures, who've been our venture-backed funding. And that has been fantastic. We also got a Genome Canada GAP Award, which has been tremendously enabling as well. So I think now our momentum uh, is really strong and we're able to to build on this partnership uh, with Schrodinger in a very close collaboration. Wow, that's incredible. Can you describe a bit more about Bright Angel's platform for drug discovery? Yeah, so right now, Bright Angel's been focused on advancing one main lead program, which is our development of fungal selective HSP90 inhibitors, as we discussed. Uh, And we have sort of a partnership in place to move forward two additional programs. And all of our sort of pipeline is really coming through a partnership with my academic lab. And in my academic lab, we have very extensive functional genomic and chemical biology approaches to identify exciting new targets for antifungal drug development. So we're able to identify key regulators of fungal drug resistance as well uh, as fungal stress response and virulence that are really required for the fungus to either cause disease or to be able to develop resistance to the antifungals that we rely on uh, to treat fungal infections. And as such, we're able to identify new potential targets. We can define which ones are druggable, and we are able to screen large libraries of molecules to identify potential inhibitors of targets of interest that we can advance in our various programs. Could you just maybe give me a sense of when did you realize that this would be something you'd want to pursue? Did entrepreneurship ever enter your mind when you were a grad student, when you were a postdoc? So I don't think I had particular intentions, I would say, at the, you know, at a graduate student or even postdoc uh, stage, although certainly, you know, watching Susan engage in these, it, it became clear that it's really exciting to be able to translate discoveries, you know, translate the work you do in the lab to potentially have an impact beyond just the scientific community, right? Having that kind of impact is exciting and important and something I think many people would aspire to is to translate their discoveries into a benefit to whatever area they're working on, right? So in this case, it would be human health. So I think it was always of interest, but I don't think I ever particularly focused on the entrepreneurial side. And I think it was this wonderful, you know, taking advantage of opportunities when they arise. So this partnership with Schrodinger was perfect because they brought the computational chemistry expertise, which was crucial for the success of the program. They also brought the business development expertise, which then meant I didn't have to acquire all that knowledge and skills. I could partner with people with complementary expertise. And then when we got the support from Mars Innovation, that was also tremendously enabling because then there was the sort of the right person uh, at the helm to be able to help drive all the partnerships, the licensing, the the legal context, all that other components, which I could then focus on the science, which is what I bring to the table. So my area still is focusing on the science, but I'm thrilled to be part of a partnership where we can translate that. And I think that's a major goal for what I'd like to see coming out of our work. Uh, And our lead program for the company at this moment is our HSP90 program, uh, developing fungal selective inhibitors of of HSP90, as we've discussed, which I think has 
phenomenal potential and we're really excited about this. But I note that we also have uh, lots of other sort of preclinical drug development programs that we incubate in our academic lab. And we have a great partnership with Bright Angel so that the company will have the potential to do sort of a platform approach with multiple targets in a pipeline context. But where is Bright Angel uh, actually located? Is it part and parcel of your lab or is it offset from there? So Bright Angel is most certainly in Toronto. So we're in Toronto. Uh, The biology, as I mentioned, is contracted to my lab, but Bright Angel is physically distinct from my lab. So we were originally connected with Mars Innovation and our CEO had space in Mars Innovation. And now we are connecting in with J-Labs. So we are in the the same tower as my academic lab. What's your ambition for Bright Angel? Where do you see it in five years? And what's the potential opportunity to address fungal disease? I think there's a tremendous opportunity. There's a tremendous need for new antifungals, as you could see with the example of Candida auris, for which we have no effective therapeutics that work against many of the isolates that are multi-drug resistant. So there's a tremendous need, and we're seeing some impressive innovation, I think, in the antifungal space, and all of it's really being led by these sort of small biotechs. So Amplex Pharmaceuticals is one example. F2G is another example. Sidara, there's a number of companies that are making good, good progress. I think we're really unique in targeting uh, drug resistance. So this is a a really important strategy. And I think we've got a really effective team and the partnership with Schrodinger is is incredibly enabling. So I expect that we're gonna make great progress and we've got a really wonderful team focused on addressing an important unmet medical need. And we've got a really unique kind of approach that I think will really deliver. It sounds like you're really leaning into the process of entrepreneurship. Uh, What are some of the interesting lessons you're learning? You mentioned the skills around pitching, but are there any other things that you're learning that you might not have anticipated? I feel like I'm learning so many different things. I mean, I feel every every interaction, I always try to see what I can what I can take from that and, and learn from that. So I've learned more structural biology than ever before by working with Schrodinger. That's sort of still focused on the, the science side of things of what we're doing. Learning how much goes into thinking about target product profile. So those are not things we think about in our academic lab, but those are certainly important in terms of thinking about, you know, development of a therapeutic you know, thinking broadly about, you know, clinical trial design, thinking broadly about regulatory affairs and context, thinking about all of these issues and partnerships and funding and dilutive versus non-dilutive. So I think that there's many uh, areas that are super important to explore. And for me, the key is always to have the right people at the table because you want experts in each of those areas uh, and you want to be able to speak the language and understand what everyone's talking about but yet you need the leaders to have the right expertise. So I also run a department, as you know, I'm chair of molecular genetics. I also run a CIFAR program, which is a big international interdisciplinary team focused on the fungal kingdom. So I have so many leadership roles as well as running a big lab and having two kids, (laughs) a few other things. So for me, the key is not having to acquire all of the expertise for all of the areas required for success, but it's all about building teams. So it's building teams with fantastic people who have the right kinds of expertise and work well together to be able to accomplish great things that are really much, much greater than the sum of the parts. You've spoken about the importance of strong teams, and I noticed you've been working with some really outstanding individuals in putting the company together who not only have their PhDs, but also have a strong business background. How important do you think it is to have people involved who are not only versed in the science, but also have a deep fluency and experience in business? Yeah, so I think having great teams that cover all of the relevant expertise that's going to be required to move uh, a program forward is absolutely crucial. Uh, You need to be able to anticipate every possible challenge in order to be ready to effectively navigate these challenges. So I think it's super important. And my expertise certainly lies in the science and not in the business. So it's very important from my perspective to have teams that complement all the various strengths and weaknesses. And so having people with outstanding business expertise and acumen is is really tremendously important. Um, And it helps us develop effective short-term and long-term strategies and be prepared to most effectively advance the program. And I think we all know that beyond just the science, there's many other parts that are crucial in terms of having the funding pipeline in place, the clinical development plan in place, and a a long-term sustainable business strategy as well. What do you think holds scientists back from thinking about innovation, 
commercialization and the applications of their research discoveries? I think that many people are interested, but it requires, you know, all of these steps to to translate requires different uh, knowledge. So it's, it's again, I think if you're an academic, you know how to ask academic questions, you know how to design experiments and write papers and give talks and write grants, but you may have no idea how to think about evaluating a market opportunity or a target product profile or a development path or um, how to access you know, funding for a startup or what are the steps or what are the intellectual property considerations. So I think that there's so many different skills and knowledge bases that you need to access to, to do this effectively, that it can be very difficult unless you're plugged into the right network uh, or have the right contacts to advise you. So I think that those are the, the key is, is the capacity to be plugged into the right network of the people that can provide guidance and advice on on how to develop such a a plan or path. I understand you're also working on an initiative to provide seed funding to catalyze innovation and commercialization. Uh, What's this project about and why do you think it's important to have a fund to commercialize academic research? Yeah, so I think there's many challenges to uh, commercialization of academic research. So it's very difficult to secure very early stage funding um, when you've got a fantastic, brilliant idea that's going to really be a game changer. And we felt that it would be crucial to sort of invest in some of this early stage research that has great commercialization potential in order to catalyze that kind of activity. So we know that there's phenomenal talent and research enterprise activity in our Toronto community that we see less extensive commercialization activity than in some places like, for example, at MIT, where I did my postdoctoral work at the Whitehead Institute. So part of that can be cultural. Part of it also has to do with the level of funds and financial resources that are invested to drive commercialization. So in thinking about how we could address this sort of at the department level, was clear that we needed to bring together some expertise and realize that we had fantastic expertise in our alumni community. So we assembled a board, an advisory board with wonderful uh, alumni from our department who had great experience in business development and sort of uh, life science entrepreneurship and uh, venture capital and other kinds of career trajectories that would enable them to provide really great guidance uh, in how to think about strategically developing such a fund and how to guide our investigators into maximizing the innovation and commercialization potential of their research. So we were able to to build this concept and this framework, and we're really delighted to have a generous donation in this past year from David Dime and Elisa Newton for our Catalyst Fund in Molecular Genetics. So we announced the very first Catalyst Fund Award this year and this was at our 50th anniversary symposium and Miko Tepale was the, the winner and he was at the Donnelly Center doing some really innovative and transformative work in the cancer drug discovery space using ProTac. Sounds like a great award and an amazing opportunity to support your colleagues in their entrepreneurial efforts. I was wondering if we could pivot uh, to talk about your role as the chair of the Department of Molecular Genetics at the University of Toronto. And what kind of lessons are you taking away around leadership? So it's a huge role. Uh, I was associate chair before I was chair. So I became associate chair at approximately you know, five years in. Uh, and that was a, a great sort of introduction to the sort of university leadership role. As associate chair, I was involved largely in um, sort of communication, alumni relations, and professional development. So really exciting areas that I was pretty passionate about. And so it was a way in which to think about how we could build some new programs to really enhance the experience for our students and how to engage our alumni to help inspire our students. And I think we've engaged you in many of these initiatives. So, so uh, we clearly identify great talent <laughs> and uh, engage them well. So I'd been sort of familiar and as being an associate chair, you you generally are part of an executive committee and then have pretty good handle on what's happening in terms of all the different leadership portfolios that work with the chair in terms of running a department. So I was uh, pretty clear on what might be involved, but it's obviously a, a huge different kind of scale of operations than running a lab. But with running a department, you know, we have approximately 100 faculty members, approximately 350 students. We run uh, multiple graduate programs. We run a professional master's, a genetic counseling program, as well as a very large thesis-based research program. So we have hundreds of students. 
We run an undergraduate program as well. Uh, we teach many, many students through our courses online and in person when that was a reality. <laughs> Currently, it's all online. So I think that there's so many layers and there's so many skills in terms of, you know, people management is huge. Conflict resolution is huge, right? It's always the, the challenging problems that other people can't solve that, that rise, <laughs> rise up to your, your plate. Developing curriculum, innovating in the curriculum space, keeping ahead of what do we need to be teaching the students, where's research heading, being able to resolve problems when there's funding challenges. So I think that there's a huge role and the mission is just far beyond your own personal sphere, right? You have to always be thinking about how can you enable your much broader community? So how can you enable all of your faculty members to do the best science that they can do to progress through their careers? What do early career researchers need? What do mid-career researchers need? You also need to be able to think about all of your students. You know, are we offering the right kind of programs to address and reach our, our educational mission? Are we supporting our students in the right way for long-term success? Uh, how do we track that? Are we engaging our alumni? How well do we synergize with the broader university community? Are there partnerships that we should be building? We have multiple, you know, international partnerships. How do we recruit the best students, you know, in the world to our program across Canada? So I think there's so many layers. You always have to kind of put the community first because that's really a central role as chair. Hmm. Speaking of chairs, then, I'd like to ask you about another Canadian scientific leader who was the founding chair of your department, Dr. Lusaminovich. He turned 100 last year and had a huge impact on Canada's scientific community. I know before COVID-19 you had been working to help celebrate his birthday, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about him as a leader in Canada and maybe touch upon a training award that I think you're setting up to honour his legacy. Yeah, so I mean, Lou was founding chair in 1969. The department was called Medical Cell Biology back in that day, and he's had such a phenomenal impact, you know, on science, you know, in, in Toronto, in Canada, globally. He's founding multiple institutes and really uh, influencing a huge number of scientific careers. Obviously, we didn't overlap <laughs> directly in in the department, but I had the opportunity to interact with them as we were celebrating our 50th anniversary for the department for molecular genetics. So last year, 2019, was our 50th anniversary year, and so we had a big symposium. Lou came to the symposium, which was phenomenal, uh, and we had this amazing uh, celebration of really the accomplishments and impact of, of this community and of Lou. And that's what led us to, to connect with Lou and his daughter, Kathy. They share an office. And up until the pandemic, Lou uh, was coming to his office every day and spending, you know, at least six hours a day in his office working, you know, 99, then he turned 100 <laughs> May 1st. So phenomenal level of like commitment to science and incredibly sharp and witty and, and just as engaged as ever. So when connecting with him and thinking about his impact and legacy, it became very clear that we should recognize this and we should celebrate this uh, and we should bring the community together to celebrate his legacy and impact in a way that would be very meaningful to Lou and his family. And one thing that mattered deeply to Lou was mentorship. Uh, and he was deeply committed to sort of the importance of, of training, you know, identifying talent, nurturing talent and supporting sort of the next generation. And so we crafted with Lou and Kathy the idea of this sort of Lou Saminovich Catalyst Trainee Award. And it was a great project. And we were able to shape the scope of the award so that it really was meaningful to Lou and then work with Lou to, you know, work with his network um, to raise the funds for this. So I hadn't interacted with him much before this past year, but it's been a real honor and privilege to interact with him at this point and to be part of this great initiative to celebrate his legacy. So just following on with that idea of mentorship and the importance of, of student training, what are your expectations for students and postdocs with respect to their career paths and how do you support their development? Uh, so that's a that's a great question. So I have different roles in terms of supporting uh, my, the, you know, the trainees in my own lab and then supporting all the trainees more broadly, you know, in our department. But I think you know, I'm deeply committed to the idea that there's many different career paths. And if we look at where our students go and, and even more broadly across North America, at least where we've collected data, uh, students from, you know, academic PhDs go into all kinds of different career paths. And their training uh, provides a really amazing foundation to do all kinds of different great things that are really important and needed in this world. So 
I think that it's very important to have a broad lens of what are the possible career paths that a PhD in molecular genetics could enable. Uh, it's very important to provide rigorous training. It's very important for our mentors to be really engaged and focused. Each student needs different things, right? They all come in with their own strengths and weaknesses, their own desires and uh, passions and limitations. And so it's important to, to have a very uh, engaged interaction, lots of communication so that you understand where the student is and where they want to go and how to help them get there. And sometimes the path is not clear and it's a it's a journey and sometimes the path is clear and you help them get there. So I think part of it is uh, having a very strong sense of communication uh, and providing lots of opportunities for the students to learn about different kinds of career opportunities uh, and lots of opportunities for them to build skills that will enables them to succeed in whatever path sort of makes the most sense uh, for them. So we certainly prioritize that in my lab. And then we also prioritize that in the department. We have these career development workshops. We trained a cohort of students to lead it so that they can build their own leadership skills and then also really identify what the students want and then help lead the initiative to have these workshops where there's all kinds of topics relevant to professional development. And we also then as a department organize this big annual symposium where we bring back our alumni to talk about different career paths and to provide sort of mentoring as to what it takes to succeed in different kinds of career paths what different career trajectories look like, what each of these different jobs are really like, right? They may have no idea and just be interested in exploring. So we also try to offer uh, some curriculum in that area. We have a, an amazing graduate professional development course, which you teach. <laughs> and so that's a, a wonderful way for our students to be able to get some training in many of the skills that are really important for enabling their future success. For sure. It's great to hear all the initiatives the department has going on to support the scientific and professional development of their trainees. So let's switch gears a bit with another question. If you weren't in science, what do you think you'd be doing? I think I'd be in science. (laughs) I'm not sure what I would be doing if I wasn't in science. Uh, Communication. I love communication. So talking to people about what it means and that both communication within the scientific community is so exciting, but also communicating much more broadly. So I think it's really wonderful to be able to share uh, both the discovery process, but also the importance and impact of science to the broader community. And I think now is a really interesting moment where it's indisputable how important science is as we tackle a global pandemic. And it's really the science that's going to deliver vaccines, as you know well, therapeutics and and really crucial interventions that are going to be required to navigate and get through the other side of this. So science is important and the general public needs effective communicators. So people who can talk about what's happening in accessible language uh, and communicate what science is all about, uh, what we understand and what we don't understand about various different problems. So that might be one area in which I would be engaged. You've had an amazing career so far, a productive PhD, a high impact postdoc experience, uh, more than a decade of really outstanding research, which has been recognized by numerous awards. You've supervised many students and you've also received teaching awards and teaching, I think, is, is certainly one of your strengths. So you seem to be able to do it all. What do you consider your greatest career achievement? Ooh, <laughs> that's an interesting one. I'm not sure I could pick one. I mean, they're all so important to me. Um, I don't I don't know that I could pick one, to be honest. I, I absolutely love our research. I love thinking about, you know, fungi and figuring out how they do the amazing things that they do and the devastating things that they do. I love thinking about how we can translate our amazing discoveries from my team into new therapeutics. Enabling broader communities is amazing. Uh, Being part of this department and being able to help lead the department is a phenomenal experience and helping to shape, you know, graduate programs and undergraduate programs to ensure we can have the the best impact possible uh, in enabling our next generation. Running these big international teams is is incredible because the kind of cross interdisciplinary work that can happen is really transformative and really exciting. And the company piece has been fantastic, right? It's learning a whole new world and translating from what we do in the lab to having an impact uh, in terms of human health. So they're all interconnected from my lens. And I feel like each skill that I develop in one area winds up having benefits in other areas. So I think the strength is the diversity and having sort of a diverse portfolio of activities I feel keeps me really engaged and excited by each one of them because there's always something really different to think about. There's always new challenges 
and it keeps your perspective really broad because you're living different lives <laughs> so you know engaged with so many different kinds of activities so it's hard for me to pick one i think i i couldn't do it uh, to me i'm really um it's the whole package that that matters mm-hmm. do you have any science heroes either now or back in time who you'd like to meet uh science heroes I think, you know, Rosalind Franklin was a pretty phenomenal person who was under-recognized for her scientific discoveries that led to the understanding the structure of DNA. That, that's a pretty good one. People who didn't get to tell their story would be ones that are always important to focus on, on recognizing. So that will be the one that I give for my answer. And just in terms of your approach around encouraging women to take more leadership roles, is there anything that you see within the community, the science community, that we could improve around that? Yeah, so I think there's, you know, it's always a challenge, uh, things we can improve. I think we try to do, you know, have relevant kind of workshops. I think there's always concerns about, you know, balancing family commitments and executing on a career path that requires considerable dedication. So I think there's some level of of making sure role models are out there and making sure that we tell stories that reflect people's journeys and how they've managed because often people don't have confidence that they they could do some kind of path. And so for people to learn that others have faced challenges and how they overcame those challenges, I think can be really enabling. So I think just making sure we have good, good workshops, good networking, uh, opportunities and good resources for students to to hear about stories of challenge and stories of success that may resonate with them and each person has their own path and I think ensuring that we make sure we, we have time to mentor properly right and to talk to students about what their needs are what their concerns are what their hopes and dreams might be and and what they sense might be barriers right so if you understand what the barriers and challenges are you have a better chance of helping them overcome them. I'm going to wrap up there, and I want to thank you for joining me today for this conversation and for telling your story. Thanks for being such a strong role model and leader, and I'm looking forward to hearing about the progress of your research as well as the successes from Bright Angel Therapeutics. Thanks so much, Bruce. A real pleasure to be with you here today. You've been listening to Dr. Leah Cohen on this episode of the Science to Business Network podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the Science to Business Network, please visit our website at www.s2bn.org. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at bruce.seat at s2bn.org. Thanks for listening.